Let's read together from 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 14. Elisha raising the Shunammite's son. Elisha said, what may be done for her? And Gehazi said, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the entrance. He said, at this season, when it is time, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and bore a son at that season, at the time Elisha had told her. When the child was older, he went out, I went out one day to his father with the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to the servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, the boy sat on her knees until noon and died. She went up and laid him down on the bed of the man of God, shut the door on him and went out. Then she called to her husband, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys so that I may run to the man of God and return. He said, why are you going to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, it will be all right. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on and do not hold back for me unless I tell you. She went and came to the Mount of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her far off, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, over there is the Shunammite woman. Now run to meet her and say to her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is the child all right? When she came to the man of God at the mountain, she grabbed his feet. Gehazi approached to push her away, but the man of God said, let her alone, for she is bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and, and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, do not give me false hope? Then he said to Gehazi, Prepare yourself, take my staff in your hand and go. If you find anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him and lay my staff on the face of the boy. Then the boy's mother said, as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave without you. And he got up and followed her. Gehazi passed through ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the boy, but there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and told him, the boy is not awake. When Elisha came into the house, he saw that the boy was dead lying on his bed. So he went in and shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. He went up and lay on the child, put his face on his face, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. Then he bent over the child and the child's flesh warmed. Then he got down, walked once back and forth in the house and went up and bent over him. The boy sneezed seven times and the boy opened his eyes. Then Elisha called Gehazi and said, call the Shemanite woman. So he called her and she came to him. Then he said, pick up your son. Then she came in, fell at his feet and bowed down to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Let's welcome Artie as he comes to minister today. Do you believe that bad things happen to godly people? They do. It can happen. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit 
to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what is said will be heard and applied as you intend. And cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent vehicle to convey what needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. I pray that I will be very, very clear and that this will be a word just for that person who at this moment is experiencing something very negative, very hurtful, very hard. And I pray that this will be a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What we're going to look at today started because this Shunammite, godly woman, wealthy woman, wanted to show her gratitude to God for Elisha, the prophet. And uh, so she said, uh, come for a meal, and he did. And then he, she says to her husband, you know, let's do something for this prophet. So they build a room on top of their house, uh, put in a bed, a lamp, a chair, so that whenever he comes through, he can have a place to stay. And uh, it was a nice thing to do. And Elisha was so grateful for this, so grateful, that he began to think, what can I do? So he says to his servant Gehazi, uh, find out what we can do for her. Maybe I can speak to the king uh, or somebody like that who's well-connected. And uh, her reply, I don't uh, need well-connected people. It's not my sort of thing. Uh, and then Elisha says to Gehazi, find out more. Well, he came back and said, I will say this. She has no children, and her husband is getting old. At that, Elisha sends for her. And as she stands in the doorway, he prophesies, one year from now, you will have a son. Her reaction is, please, please don't get my hopes up. It turned out. It turned out exactly as he prophesied. And a year later, she's got a little boy. Now the story continues. That's not the end. If only that had been the end. But a few years later, we don't know how old the child was. I estimate three or four uh, because he can easily be carried. Maybe he's older than that. Uh, but he's a child. And one day, he's out in the field with his father. And it's the time of reaping. It's the time of harvest. And he begins to complain, my head, my head. I would take it to be a severe headache, maybe from the hot sun. And so the father has a servant carry him into his wife. And now she's on the lap. He's on the lap of his mother for the next few hours. And at noon, he dies. Immediately, she says to her husband, um, get your servants and a donkey, and I can go to the man of God quickly. His reply is, well, why go to him today? It's the new moon or Sabbath. It's obvious she's not going to tell him what has happened. The reason for new moon, Sabbath, because it would have been 
appropriate, traditional, on the first day of the month or on Shabbat to go to a prophet uh, to inquire or for any insight. And so he wants to know why. And her reply is, it's all right. Things weren't all right. But she said that because she doesn't want to talk about it. And says uh, to the uh, person that is on the donkey with her, uh, she saddled the donkey and then says to her servant, a lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. And they went straight to the man of God at Carmel. Because the first thing that enters her mind is to get to Elisha. Now, this is the continuing account of the Shunammite son who now is dead. Now, it turns out it ends well. It's, you could say, like a fairy tale ending. But I want to address you today in a rather different way. What about those times when it's not a happy ending? What if, what if, what you're in right now, what if it doesn't turn out like you hope? What will you do then? Your faith cannot be said to be genuine only because the dead is raised. A greater test of your faith may be that instead of the dead being raised, that he dies and your faith is strong anyway. And so what if you're in a situation I would like to give you a word and I can say to you, it's going to end well. You're going to be so happy. But what if it isn't like that? Well, why is a sermon like this important? Well, it, it shows the predicament of a promised child suddenly be taken away. And there are so many puzzles in this story. Uh, and so as she gets closer to Mount Carmel, we assume that he's up high and he can see down. And he says to Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite woman. Uh, run to meet her. See what's going on. Ask her three questions. Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? And she replies, everything is all right. Not true. She just wants to get straight to Elisha. Do you know what it's like when people say, are you all right? Fine, thank you. We all put on that uh, stiff upper lip. And we don't want to admit what might really be happening. And so she runs. And, and as soon as she gets there, she says, I don't know what's going on. She falls at the feet of Elisha, and Gehazi is going to put her away. Say, don't bother him. And he says, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me. I don't know why. Interesting this. Some people think that those who have an unusual prophetic gift <laughs> know everything. Uh, when I first came into contact with a person like that, and I've known one or two, you think they know everything. They don't. They don't know anything unless it's revealed to them. And so Elisha says, I don't know what it is. And then she says to him, didn't I ask you for a son? And didn't I tell you, don't 
raise my hopes. You see, what we have here is a situation where two things are in play. This is not an easy passage to understand. One, you could say, she's got persistent faith, what we're talking about on Friday nights. There are two kinds of faith. Saving faith, that's what gets you to heaven. When you trust the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Saving faith. But there's another kind of faith. I call it persistent faith, diligent faith, achieving faith. It's the life you live after you've been converted. And the 11th chapter of Hebrews is all about persistent faith. Those people described in Hebrews 11, this is not how they get to heaven. They're on their way to heaven. They're all saved. But they have achieving faith. They achieve things. And so you could make the case that what is behind this Shunammite is persistent faith. She's determined to get to Elisha. That is what I need to do. That's what needs to happen. Well, as soon as Elisha realizes, he says to Gehazi, go, go to the child. Because what had happened that when the child died, the mother carries the child upstairs and lays him on the bed. That's why I suggest it's, he might be just three or four years old. We don't know the age. But now, Elisha says to his servant, go and lay my staff on the child. wonder why he thought that might work. Had there been cases where it did work? Does it mean there's a certain anointing in the staff? My friend Arthur Blessed, who has uh, carried his cross around the world, uh, wherever he goes, people want a little piece of the cross. They'll take a knife, and he see, he had to stop him. He said, I wouldn't have a cross left now because it would all be gone. Uh, and there's uh, uh, the belief, you know, that certain relics have... Uh, a mysterious power. And maybe, maybe Elisha was giving rise to that idea. Lay the staff on the child. But the word comes back, he's still dead. Well, here's what happens. The Shunammite lady falls at his feet and swears an oath. This is oath language. When she says to him, as the Lord lives... And you live, that's an oath. I will not leave you. That meant, I'm going to stay here. I'm not leaving. You, you, I'm not leaving. He had to go. He had to go all the way back to the child and found him dead. So what you could say here, it's persistent faith. But then there's another strain here. And that is, a feeling of entitlement. You see, she did not ask for this son. He called her in, prophesied. You're going to have a son a year from now. And she wasn't happy. She said, don't, don't get my hopes up. Maybe she had a past in which she got her hopes up and those hopes were dashed. And maybe you're a bit like that because of bad experiences Somebody tries to cheer you up and you immediately think, oh, don't, don't. I don't want to start thinking that this is going to happen. Well, 
the first thing she says to Elisha, you told me I would have that son. I said don't get my hopes up. Now he's dead. And the implicit feeling is, what are you going to do about it? Now this is not a happy situation. You know, relationships often go through three stages. Stage one, lyrical. That's where this person you've met is the greatest person you've ever met in your life, and you can see no wrong in them. You just want to be with them. You're praising them to the high heavens. But then stage two, disillusionment. And you think, how could I have ever thought this about you? <laughs> and then stage three, reality. Often we get impressed so much first time you meet somebody and you go through the lyrical stage. But now it's stage two in this relationship. And this Shunammite is feeling Something's gone wrong. I want you to do something about it. You're the one that promised the child. Now he's dead. What are you going to do? Elisha is on the spot. And now he immediately leaves himself and goes and finds the child. And when he gets there, he finds the boy dead on the couch. And then, this is interesting to me, he shut the door. And so now... He's in there praying for the child. We wouldn't know the story if he hadn't told it. Nobody was there to witness it. But it's rather interesting. Have you ever noticed how often that kind of thing can happen? It was the case with Elisha himself. Do you remember when uh, he told her to get all uh, another lady, uh, in this case a widow, to get all the jars and then just pour oil in them and they just kept coming? Did you ever notice the fact that she was said, go inside and shut the door so that the actual miracle was taking place and she's the only one that saw it? Or take the resurrection of Jesus. Nobody saw it. Nobody personally witnessed the moment. They found out later that it had happened. And it's an interesting thing to me. You find it when Simon Peter was asked to pray for this lady in the book of Acts. And uh, uh, her name, she was called Dorcas. And uh, he asked everybody to go out. And so he's in there by himself. It's just rather interesting to me. You see, when it comes to a miracle like raising the dead... I don't think they happen every day. They didn't happen, we only know of two cases in the ministry of Jesus. I personally long to see the miraculous returned to the church, and, and I have hope that it will. Some of you will know that in my view, the next thing to happen on God's calendar is not the second coming, but the awakening of the church before the second coming. And in this awakening, there'll be a restoration of the miraculous. And it should not be surprising if it includes being raised from the dead. If so, chances are it won't be happening on every corner. Well, this is a very unusual thing to take place. Well, there are so many mysteries in this word. 
Uh, one is the pain of a prophet. What he himself goes through when he gives a prophetic word and now it gives the people a feeling of entitlement. When I first met a well-known prophet, uh, he prophesied something to me that was going to happen. And I'll tell you something, it didn't happen. That, that made you happy, huh? <laughs> he prophesied other things that did. But this one didn't. And I said something to him. And I immediately perceived what it is like because his own reputation is at stake. People will quote him. Well, now, this is Elisha. His reputation is at stake. She has said to him, I didn't ask for this. You've given me this baby, this child. Now, what are you going to do? And so, you could say he is borderline desperate. There's no precedent that I know of for laying on top of a child, eyeball to eyeball, mouth to mouth, hands on his hands, feet on his feet. What's the precedent for that? But he was using everything he could. He was so desperate and nothing happens. And then he gets up and walks back and forth back and forth. Then he lies on the child again. And then he feels warmth. And then the child sneezes seven times. What is the importance of the number seven? You tell me. He just says he sneezed seven times. And then he gives his the little baby, child rather, back to its mother. And I think if we get to see a video replay of this story when we get to heaven, don't be surprised if it shows right after it was over, Elisha saying, <laughs> He wanted that to happen so much. Well, now... Why is this word important? Well, the answer is there are times when God appears to betray us. When things don't work out like you think. Uh, we've heard about Martin Luther today. And he used to say you must know God as an enemy before you can know him as a friend. And I've had people say, well, I've never known God as an enemy well, I would say to you, it ain't over till it's over. But that time may come when all is going well. You've prayed and your prayer was answered. You feel the sense of God and you just say, I don't know why people won't be Christians. This is so wonderful. And you're just on top of the world. And you hear about other people who get discouraged and you you probably point the finger at them. So why are you so discouraged? God is real. He's wonderful. You hear of others that get discouraged. You say, well, that'll never happen to me until one day you hit a wall. You say, oh, dear. What on earth is going on? 
and you thought you had a friend. And now it, it would seem he's working right against you. Well, let's look at this. You see, sooner or later, this is my view, all sovereign vessels experience the betrayal barrier when they hit a wall. And if you are there today, you have hit a wall. Somebody's here today, I think you didn't want to come to church. You thought, well, I'll just come. You've been so discouraged. Nothing has gone right. It's no accident that you're here. But then another aspect of this dear Shunammite woman, what was her motive? You could say persistent faith. That shows great faith. And there's a good reason for thinking that. You know why? Because this miraculous account is recorded in Acts chapter 11. The 11th chapter of Acts. You see, this is a description not of people who get saved, it's a description of those, they've been saved. They're on their way to heaven, but they do extraordinary things on their way to heaven. And in Hebrews 11, verse 35, this account is referred to. A woman getting her child back, raised from the dead. And so it's a great example of persistent faith. It's also an example of a little bit of a feeling of entitlement. And that's the other thing. Martin Luther also said that every Christian is simultaneous saint and sinner. Does that surprise you? You think, I'm a saint? Well, sometimes I'm no saint. I, there's no halo. Look, we're all saints because the righteousness of God is put to our credit. We're God's holy people but we're also sinners. And Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. So this woman, wealthy, godly, there's two motives going here. Partly she feels that Elisha needs to do something because she didn't ask for this child, but it's also she's got such faith that if I can get to Elisha and she swears this oath, I will not leave you. That means I'm staying here. And he says, well, I guess I better go. And now that's when he goes. So I ask, are you in a predicament at this moment? You know, there's another thing we learned from this story. And that is how people in ministry have to be careful how close they get to people. I don't know if your pastor has dealt with a problem like this. I haven't asked him, but I dare say most pastors have got to watch how close they get because after a while, that person you get close to, they want to say, I'm close to the pastor. Or then sometimes they want to make sure they're the best friend of the pastor. And then if they don't become their best friend, then they become their enemy. Every pastor had to deal with that. And so it's, it's a delicate situation you want to get close and friendly, but then if you're too close, when something goes wrong, you'll be the first to go to the pastor and say, I need help, and you've got to help me. We're friends. You know, you see just a little of this with Jesus. 
and his three closest friends. Did you know that Jesus had his own friends and they were not from the 12? He had 12 disciples. And with the 12 disciples, it was a special relationship. But there was a time when Jesus could go to a place called Bethany, put his feet up. He was kind of off duty, as it were. He didn't have to watch every word. Not that he would have a problem with getting in a wrong word. The point is, he did have close friends. But then one day, one of them got sick. His name was Lazarus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. They were like family. So they send word to Jesus and saying, the man you love, Lazarus, critically ill. They knew that as soon as Jesus heard that, he would come straight to Bethany and heal him. They knew that. He didn't come. They can't imagine. I thought we were friends. And then when he does come, it's four days after the funeral. And they don't get it. First, Martha says, Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Sweet little pointing of the finger. You're the reason he died. And then comes Mary, sobbing her heart out. Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. You see, it was a feeling of entitlement that they were special and that they would be treated in a special way. See, we've all got this weakness. By the way, there are three things I want to say parenthetically, uh, especially to young people here today. There are three things that you need to be aware of. And I speak as an old man. And I speak as one recognizing that there's a spirit of the age that's worse than ever. Uh, first, consumerism. It is an age when if the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. <laughs> and you think you're going to solve your problem by just shopping, buying seeing what you can get. And then, at the end of the month, the credit card bill comes due. And you're sorry you bought it. I said a few weeks ago, there's some here, I don't know if anybody did, but you need to cut up your credit card. Save you a lot of trouble. The second thing is individualism. Never before has there been so much emphasis on individualism. What's that? Well, free thinking, being original, doing what you feel like doing, being independent, doing your own thing, being self-reliant. Now, a little of that can be good, but be careful that you don't become so individualistic that you don't learn. Because when you get into your 50s and 60s, you will rue the day that you didn't learn to submit to your church, to your pastor, to those who are wiser than you, all because you knew it all. And the third thing to be aware of is this feeling of entitlement, uh, that you're entitled to things, to all good things, whether from God, the government, from people. 
That is individualism to the extreme. And so, let me talk to somebody here. You're in a predicament right now. Uh, God promised you a job, and you get it, and then you're laid off. You say, well, Lord, you gave me this job. Why did you give me this job? And now I'm laid off work. Or God promised you that you would be healed, and you believe it. I've been healed. Then you get sick again. Or God promised that you would find a spouse, and you can't wait to see who God is going to send. And you pray, and God sends you a husband. He sends you a wife. Then 18 months later, you wish you were still single. <laughs> Where was God in all this? You see, I know what it is to have my hopes built up. I know what it is to be disappointed. I was convinced that my mother would not die of this heart disease that she had and stroke. She was deathly ill, paralyzed. God, I thought, told me she'd be healed. And then I'm told one morning, your mother just passed away. What's going on here? My father was afraid I would lose my faith. For some reason, I didn't. Very, very difficult days. And then, two or three years after that, I met uh, who, a man who was the associate pastor of our church in Ashland, Kentucky. And he became, I would say now, my first mentor. He became a good friend. I looked up to him. He took the place of my mother. It was like a father and mother. And I thought that this is the greatest man of God I've ever known. He will never disappoint me. I could see no wrong in him. Not only that, he encouraged me to believe that the two of us one day would have a ministry that would go around the world, and we're waiting for it to happen. And some years later, he gives me a call from Ohio and said, there's a church here that I think would call you to be their pastor. And he recommended me, and he recommended the church. And I go, and it is the most brilliant beginning. They thought they had Billy Graham. <laughs> but after a few weeks and months, things began to go wrong. Turns out that what I was preaching was different from the way my friend had been preaching. And it was almost like opposites. And would you believe over the next few months, this mentor betrayed me. He betrayed me. And the effect was so traumatic that years later, this is going to surprise you. I told it in the first service, so, and Bruce said he wishes every charismatic and every Pentecostal in the world should hear this. I needed psychiatric help. And I needed psychologists and people to help me. The trauma of being deserted 
by this man who was my mentor. And there's a sense in which I've never got over it. We kind of made up years later, and I actually preached his funeral a few years ago. His explanation for all this was, well, R.T., if I hadn't done what I did and you had stayed in that church, you wouldn't be where you are today, and because of what I did, that's why you're where you are today. That was his way of justifying it. All I know is it hurt so much, and I felt let down. And sometimes things work out, and uh, sometimes things get so bad you think they can only get better, and then they get worse. I think one day I'll write a book on when relationships turn sour. You meet someone, and you're so excited. It happened to me at Westminster Chapel. Those, you know, rushed in, so glad I'm there. We got close to them. And then when I started to do something that disappointed them, what I preached, or like having Arthur Blessed at Westminster Chapel, got me in all kinds of trouble. The same friends turned their backs on me. It's enough to make you just keep a distance because you think you found a friend that will never desert you. You see, God doesn't want us to put too much confidence in any single person. We're living in a time when people want to get a word that will say to them, it's going to turn out well. You think that everybody should be healed. And this is being taught today. There are those who teach it. Everybody should be healed. And then you pray for them, and they're not healed. And you say, why? Oh, you didn't have enough faith. And the poor person says, well, I'm doing my best. I'll pray again. They don't get healed. You don't have enough faith. And you're demoralized. What more can I do? You see, the truth is, God doesn't heal everybody. And the further truth is, we're all going to die one day. Do you think we're supposed to get healed on and on and on and nobody dies? Save something for the second coming. <laughs> but there was a prophet in the Old Testament. His name was Habakkuk. And he had problems with God. Saying, Lord, read it. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. It says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Why? Have you ever had that question? If you're a loving God and you're all-powerful... How could you let this happen? Why the suffering? Why the evil? You thought you were the first to ask that? Habakkuk asked it. But with this difference, so interesting. God says, Habakkuk, you want to know why I allow bad things happen to godly people. Is that right, Habakkuk? Yes. 
Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to station yourself in a certain spot, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to reveal to you something. I'm going to give you a revelation that will make you understand why I allow, I allow evil. Well, Habakkuk says, I can hardly wait. So I go, and I'm there. It's, in that, it's Habakkuk chapter 2. And the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. The revelation awaits an appointed time. In fact, Habakkuk, it speaks of the end. What are you saying to me, Lord? Are you saying that you're not going to tell me now why you allow evil, but I've got to wait till the end, last day of history, when Jesus comes? God says, you got it. Habakkuk could have said, well, that's not good enough. I'm out of here. I don't, I, I'm not your prophet anymore. But do you know what? Something happened to Habakkuk. It's so wonderful. He didn't get what he wanted. He just was told to wait. And he was given a revelation, the just shall live by faith, quoted three times in the New Testament. And then at the end of the book of Habakkuk, here's a verse that sometimes I cannot read it without coming to tears. When you remember, it was an agrarian society. People lived from day to day. They didn't have meat in their freezers. They needed rain, sun, crops, food today. And something happened to Habakkuk. I want it to happen to you. If you're in the middle of a trial and you're hoping it'll end well, you're hoping that that person will be healed, you're hoping you'll get that job, you're hoping that the friendship will be restored. Here's what Habakkuk said. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, and though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. See, that's what God wants. He can heal you, but what if he doesn't? He can give you that job. What if he doesn't? He can give you that child you're longing for. What if he doesn't? He can give you that husband, that wife, that rise in pay, that beautiful home. But what if he doesn't? Can you say, though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and fields produce no food and no sheep and no cattle, I will rejoice in God. Reminds when Arthur Blessed was in northern Israel and he couldn't find a place to stay for the night. He was carrying his cross and he was at a bus stop and a bench and Arthur lays his cross down and lies on the bench to sleep. It starts raining. There's no covering. And the rain becomes, it starts to pour. And Arthur just looked at the rain and said, in Jesus' name, stop. 
lightning, thunder, it poured twice as hard. <laughs> and Arthur looked up and says, God, I love you. <laughs> That's what God is looking for today. Oh, yes, Elisha raised the child from the dead. Happy ending. But not all endings are happy. We're all going to die. Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation. But he's a sovereign God. At the end of the day, it will turn out in such a way. I promise this, the day will come if you don't give up your faith and you break through the betrayal barrier. You'll look back on the past and thank God for every single thing. It was part of your preparation to bring you to this place because Paul says we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Well, ask the Shunammite, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything's fine, she said. They weren't. But God had a purpose in it all. And what is going on right now that may not seem right will one day seem good. You can put me under a lie detector. And I can tell you now, the worst things that have happened to me, I've lived long enough to thank God for every single one of them. And so will you. Heavenly Father, take this word, apply this word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.